You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. It's been months, or at least it seems like that, weeks. What was it? May 29th, I think. Somewhere here I actually have the date right in my notes. But we got started on Philippians, and that was a blessing. So that's kind of what the, the format will be. Jeff and I, or Jeff. That's, that's Jess with an F in it. Jess and I will be tag teaming. Uh, he'll be starting, he's already started the book of uh, Philippians, and I'll be continuing through 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 4 today. Um, we left off with uh, verse 14 in on the 29th, excuse me, bit, verse, yeah, verse 14 on the 29th of May, and that's where we'll start back up, but we'll have a little bit of reminder, a little bit of review. But before we do that, let's open in prayer. Father, this morning as we look into your word, it's with excitement and anticipation because you never leave us untaught. You never leave us uh, without the means by your grace, your word, and your Holy Spirit to live lives that will honor you. And so as we look into your word this morning, um, we're glad that you came to us in the way that you did. Paul has to deal with these Corinthians. He may have to come to them, he said, with a whip. But uh, you took that whip for us. And you took, it's by your stripes that we are healed. And so this morning as we, as we look at your words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it would be with, we ask that it would be with that in the background of our mind all morning. That what you have done for us is absolutely unstunning and unbelievable and we thank you for it. Help us to honor you in all that we do today in Jesus name. Amen. Um, so let's read chapter 4 and that'll get us back into the mood, as it were, into the Corinthian mood, which may or may not be and we see the end of this chapter, a good mood. Chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required as stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet, I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against another, against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. 
and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So Paul is, is setting the stage here for what, what you might call the beginning of a serious confrontation. I can't, I can't think of another way to word it. He is going to have to deal with the Corinthians' actions. And their actions have been anything but Christian. They have been arrogant, self-serving, self-righteous, and uh, destructive. Bad theology produces bad behavior, and it's destructive behavior. God didn't write all this just so he would have a book that would be a bestseller on Amazon.com. He wrote all this for our, for the service to the church, for bringing glory to himself. And so the Corinthians are living in a way that is actually quite consistent with the way they're, they're interpreting Scripture. The problem is they're not interpreting it correctly. And so their bad theology is producing bad behavior. So in verse 12, Paul's, let's go back just a little bit farther, actually, for a review here. He, um, he lays the groundwork in sarcasm, and that's not to say we should always be sarcastic, but, but Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, uses the sarcastic tone. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, <laughs> but you are prudent. And I can imagine his facial as you know, he would be walking back and forth in front of his secretary as the secretary's rapidly writing down these words, trying to keep up with him probably. That's my imagination, by the way. That's not scriptural, but it's fun to it's fun to imagine. And as this guy's trying to keep up with Paul, Paul is coming up with and, and he goes from from poignancy to sarcasm to confrontation and back to the others. And he bounces around in this in this in this whole book in a manner that just is amazing. But he's dealing with some pretty petulant brats, if you will, if I could be allowed to choose those terms. So he says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we're without honor. Who, who do you think had more honor, really? The apostles or the Corinthians? Who should have had more honor? Yeah. And you, you know they knew that when he was, when the, whoever was reading this letter to the Corinthian church was reading it. And the astute ones the ones who would be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit would have, well, their heads would be hanging. To this present hour, Paul says, we are both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed, clothed and roughly treated and homeless. And we toil working with our hands. We are, when we are reviled, we bless. 
That went against the Greek concept of when you revile, give it back to him in spades. When we are persecuted, we endure. Again, the Greeks were famous for not enduring persecution, but uh, rather dealing it back. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate the opposite of what the world would tell the Corinthian church to do. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. The off-scouring, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. That would be, um, I want to just remind you that, that, that some of the ancient philosophies were such that if you were having a series of, of uh, calamities, windstorms, floods, whatever, you'd take the least important people in your society and you'd take them out and you'd drown them. You'd toss them in the ocean. They were, the, they were your off-scouring. And that would hopefully conciliate the gods and things would settle back down. So that's the word Paul was using. Now, does it sound to you, as I read through this and I got to verse 14, I went, really? Does it sound to you like he's trying to shame them? Trying to get them to think things through? I thought he was. But the scripture says he's not. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I tried to think back to when my kids were still at home, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Did I do this? Did I do things to shame them? Or did I try to do things to admonish them? By the way, that's a good, that's a good philosophy to have as a parent. Don't shame your children. Admonish them. Take care of them. Bring to them the necessary remonstrance, correction, instruction that they may need. But don't shame them. He says, I didn't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And then we talked about how Paul uh, refers to them in such tender and intimate terms. Uh, and he's, it's, as I, I pointed out a couple weeks ago, no matter how it sounds, Paul was not trying to shame the Corinthians. Although if they were paying attention, especially those in the congregation or in the church that would have been under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they would have to know that what they were doing was unbiblical. He was trying to admonish or warn them. The word admonish comes from the Greek word to put someone in mind of, to place before them. Paul knew this group of Corinthian believers and he knew what would get to them. He had served, he'd taught them for 18 months. More than that, the Holy Spirit certainly knew how to communicate to them in a manner that they would hear. Paul considered the Corinthians, as he said, his beloved children. The word beloved comes from the same root from which we get the word love. And it is the agape love that he's talking about here. Paul's love for them knew no bounds. And when you love someone in that manner, you'll do what's right for them. Which may be difficult sometimes. And sometimes it's really easy to do what's right for someone you love. Sometimes it's really, really difficult. It would just be easier to back away and say, I'm not going to mess with this. Paul didn't do that. He wants to bring them back to the gospel, back to the word of God, and therefore back to service, the service of the king. Most of us have children. Some of us know what's like when those children go astray. So don't, as I said before, don't picture Paul here pumping his fist and delighted over his own turn of phrase. Rather picture him pacing, scratching his head back and forth, furrowed brow, saddened features, trying to piece together a letter that will communicate to these beloved children that they're going astray is harming them, it's harming the world around them, it's harming the rest of the church around them. It's a, it's, it's a terrible thing. Um, so, their behavior had become a stigma to the church. 
Paul loved them and he wanted to correct them just as the father wanted to correct his prodigal son. Remember the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son. Well, the father, every day, was looking down the road for his son to come home. Every day he spent a part of the time looking down the road for his son to come home. So that when the son came, he knew immediately. That's what I picture Paul here. He's, he's, he's admonishing, he's warning, he's concerned. But remember what he said in Philippians? I am convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you may finish it if he has the patience. He didn't say that. Will complete it to the day of Christ. So he knows that the Corinthian believers are going to come back. And he may very well be the instrument to bring them back. They were factionalized. They were haughty. They were prideful. They were, what I used, the word I used was petulant brats. Their behavior had become a stigma. So, <clears throat> later, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. In 2 Corinthians 12, um, 14, 14 and 15. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you... For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He's still admonishing them. <clears throat> and to the Thessalonians, he said in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. It's a beautiful picture. It's a good picture of a father who truly loves and encourages and exhorts his children, just as the father does to us. If you have any spiritual responsibility over someone, whether they are your child or someone that you are responsible for bringing to the Lord, you have done that. There may be times, and, and you know what I mean by that. The father draws them. The father changes their heart. The father makes them aware. The father gives the grace that they're saved. But if you're the instrument that he used... <coughs> You may, there may be a time when you will have a position where you can put them in mind of something that nobody else could. Although, how many times have you told your kids A, B, and C, and they, they didn't seem to be getting it, and then somebody from outside the family told them A, B, and C, and they got it? And you went, what am I, chopped liver? No. No, you're not. You were the one who admonished them and put them in mind of it first. Guess where that was? It was bouncing around in their mind. It was in their brain. And for some reason, God chose to use someone else to bring that to harvest. But you planted the seed and you watered by God's grace. Or you may have just planted the seed. Anyway, will you exhort? I, I left off with this. Will you exhort? Will you encourage? Will you implore rather than scold, humiliate, and self-righteously judge? This is what Paul was trying to do with his beloved Corinthians. And here also, Paul begins to assert his apostolic authority over this church by referring to them as his beloved children. So with that, let's go to verse 15 in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. And we'll start, we'll, we'll begin again. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father. Through the gospel. So again, another contrast. The word countless, by the way, comes from the Greek word from which we get myriad. And it was often translated 10,000. 10,000 was a whole bunch in the minds of the Greek. <clears throat> and, and it used to be in our minds, too, until we watched government spending get away. And, you know, I remember a time when they would say, 
million here, million there. Pretty soon you're talking real money. A million? They spend that in 48 seconds. So Paul uses the word that in the Greek minds would have been trillions to us. Quadrillions. The Corinthians had many tutors. Prominent among them would have been Peter and Apollos, their current pastor. These tutors in the Greek world, by the way, were not just teachers, but were much more than just a teacher. They were a home instructor. Pedagogos, or pedagogos, excuse me. Um, someone who lived with the child and became much more than just a teacher to him. He was a companion. He was a guardian. He was a helper. He was a mentor. He was an instructor and something of a friend as well. Paul implies that the Corinthians had many of these. Uh, and, and they did indeed. But in each Greek family that had a paid tutor to mentor, instruct, and educate the child, there was still only one father. And that child knew who his father was. And knew his father loved him. So, Paul's not making a claim of some special ability to create special spiritual children. Only God does that. Although he had spiritual children, by God's grace, throughout the New Testament world. For example... He called the Galatians his children. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He referred to Timothy as his true child in the faith. To Timothy, 1 Timothy 1-2. My true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He also called Titus his true child in the common faith. Titus 1-4. To Titus, my true child in the common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Savior. Remember Onesimus from the book of, what was that, Colossians, when we studied Colossians. <laughs> Titus, uh, Philemon 10, or 1.10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. A young man who ran away from home, ran away from his, his master, and ran right into the arms of Paul, right into the arms of the Holy Spirit, and became a Christian, and got sent back. He clearly states that he became the father of the Corinthians through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his spiritual relationship to them. It is as a father to a child because of and through the gospel. Any one of us can become a spiritual parent to someone by virtue of the gospel. And, and yes, that does give us a sort of spiritual responsibility and a limited authority over them, but only the kind of authority that comes from being a coach, a carer, someone who is... Uh, who feels a personal responsibility for. This does not imply that modern Christians can have the kind of an authority that an apostle had over a church that they founded. Uh, elevated ideas of personal authority lead to some of the most, some of the worst misuses of the Bible imaginable. If I, as one of your elders, had the kind thought, I had the kind of authority the king has then you would be my subjects. Neither one of us wants that kind of a relationship. We're subjects to the king, to the king of all kings. It's unbelievably unbiblical. Any authority that an elder has over his spiritual flock, quite frankly, is granted to him voluntarily by that flock. And we see that both in the actual scripture, in the context, and in the definitions of the words used. It's a voluntary submission. They will understand, though, that through Scripture, their responsibility to be obedient to their elders is as their elders are obedient to the Lord and bring them proper scriptural truth. But a fawning subservience without careful reflection as to whether Scripture authorizes something 
is dangerous. Well, Cornell said it. It must be right. Gong. Anybody remember the gong show? Gong. Check it out. Be Bereans. We love Bereans. Everybody knows what a Berean is. Someone who says, that sounds excellent. Let me check what the scripture says. Any comments or questions about verse 15? I guess we're not quite done with verse 15. So hold those questions. Coming on the heels, as it were, of Paul's declaration that he's not trying to shame them. Remember back earlier he said, I'm not trying to shame you. He's not trying to shame them and that he loves them as children. They would have clearly understood this to be a contrast. Peter, Apollos, and others were their tutors. Paul was their beloved father. And they should treat him as such. He is about to bring a discipline such as a father would bring to an unruly child. And so this foundation was necessary. He had to remind them, I love you. I care for you. You are on my mind. You are on my heart. The Lord has great things for you. He, and it's not a sandwich where you say something nice and then you get at him and then you say something nice. It's, it's scriptural admonition and reminding. that, And they knew. I mean, can you imagine the average Corinthian sitting there and listening to this letter being read? The other shoe's about to drop. Some of them would have known. They would have known that the behavior was reprehensible as a Christian. So then, he starts it this way. Any questions about 15? We actually are going to move on to verse 16 now. For comments. Okay, he says this in verse 16. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Now, that's a strong statement. If a parent wants their child to exhibit good behavior, they should, they should model it for him or her. Do you agree? Should the parent act like... Some of you are staring at this, wondering why I'm doing that. So let's go like that. Good stare. I was admonished. They should model that behavior. Children, as we all know, catch more than they are taught. Do as I say, not as I do, simply doesn't work. I actually remember having that told to me. Do what I tell you, not what I do. I don't, I wish I could remember what I thought about that at the time, but I can tell you what my behavior must, what I must have thought, because I followed what I was shown in many cases, which was bad behavior. Here Paul says that he comes alongside of the Corinthians and he encourages them to mimic him. Those synonym phrases and words are exactly what the Greek portrays. The word for exhort is the same word that Jesus uses in the gospel, in the gospels of the Holy Spirit. Now, please, I'm not saying, so there's no misunderstanding. We are not the Holy Spirit. But in the same way, Paul, the script, the Spirit uses this word to encourage him to come. When the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us, he encourages, he wants people to come alongside of each other. Be imitators of me. I exhort you. I come alongside of you. And I tell you to mimic me is what he's saying. And the word model comes from the Greek word from which we get the English word mimic. I knew of a father when I was living in Oregon. This was many years ago in the 70s. I was working in the mills there. And he... I was a Christian, although a really new and dumb one. But, but that's okay. The Holy Spirit can use a rock if he needs to. And this father was bragging to us about how his son would mimic him 
with his language and his hand signals. Certain hand signals that, that we would consider reprehensible. He thought it was funny. Uh, unfortunately, when that boy got to be five or seven, five, six, and seven, and mimicked those things in public, daddy wasn't so amused anymore. Nowadays, they probably would be. I mean, the culture has changed. But back in the mid-70s, that wasn't acceptable to say those and do those kinds of things out in the public. And so what his child was doing was mimicking his father. And at, his father expressed delight when the child was a toddler. But when he got to be a first, second, and third grader, it was not so delightful anymore. It was bringing uh, shame on the family. And so that's what Paul's talking about with this all behind them. You guys have been imitating the wrong people. You need to imitate Christ-like behavior. Children will model what they see. We cannot take this to some sort of extreme and pretend that elders are adults and the flock are children. Thomas, you need to listen to me now. You petulant child, you. I choose Thomas because he knows. He'll get me later, I promise. The payback is terrible. But that's not the point here. It's not the point. That's not what Paul was referring to, nor is he saying that. What he is saying is that as he takes hold of the gospel and follows the Lord Jesus Christ, so those whom he has given the gospel to should follow him. We all need, him, we all need um, uh, on-hand, close and personal um, object lessons. Object lessons are fun or good or helpful. Something that we can look at and see and see what's going on. And imitate that. Theory is good. But watching something happen and watching how it's played out. Isn't that helpful for you? When, when you're trying to figure out, some of you may have been following, we're rebuilding the front of my wife's pickup. And we actually watched some of guys on YouTube who had already made all the mistakes we would have made yesterday. Uh, we watched them do what they did. And so we came up with these cool ways of... of, of uh, Pressing and removing bushings that take five billion pounds of pressure to move, uh, and we don't have a press. We watched it done. We applied it. That's what Paul is saying. Therefore, I come alongside you. Mimic me as I obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't mimic him if he wasn't obeying, by the way. Uh, Paul remained faithful to this concept throughout his writings, and that's what that next... One was four. Uh, he wrote, he wrote uh, from his first missionary journey was 45 to 47, and his second Roman imprisonment was 68 AD. And through that entire time, through all the books he wrote, through all the Holy Spirit's influence in his life, because biblical doctrine doesn't change with the wind, Paul's writings remained true to the concepts that he's talking to in the Corinthians here or whether he was telling Timothy, or whether he was telling Titus, or the Galatians, or the Romans, or the Ephesians, or the Philippians, his philosophy remained true. Because it was the philosophy, I, that's a poor word, but it was the theology of the Father. And God's the same yesterday, the same today, the same tomorrow, is he not? What he says to the Thessalonians in 53 AD will be no different than what he says to in 2 Timothy in 68 AD. Did I get some dates wrong up there? Okay, good. I searched around and tried to find something that was consistent with, with what I thought was accurate. 
Don't believe everything you read on the Internet, Abe Lincoln. Okay. He later encourages the Corinthians to follow him. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. In Philippians 3, 16 and 17, he encouraged the Philippians to observe the standard that the gospel gives and to follow. There we go. He encourages the Philippians to observe the standard that the gospel gives and to follow Paul's example as he lived according to that very gospel standard. He says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He exhorted the Thessalonians that as they saw the kind of men Paul and others had become and had proved to be among them, that they should imitate the Lord, of course, and the apostles. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 and 6. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us, mimics of us and of the Lord. Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I probably would have put the Lord first there, but the Holy Spirit chose this method. So it's good. He encouraged the Thessalonians again later to imitate him in the way that he didn't burden others in the establishing of the gospel. This is not to say that there isn't a proper method of paying your pastors. But in this particular case, Paul was trying to get the gospel to as many people as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And in most cases, it took, uh, especially in the early church, in the early founding of the church, it took a man who was willing to do that on his own. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, Second Thessalonians 3, 8 and 9 says. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this. He had a right to be sustained by the gospel. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so you would follow our example. He was the YouTube of the day, if you will. He was the example. They saw what Paul did. And the Holy Spirit built it into their lives. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews also encouraged the readers to imitate the faith of those, the faith of those who <clears throat> led them upon considering their lives. Hebrews 13.7 Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the results of their conduct, <clears throat> imitate their faith. Not just their words, but their actions, their lives, what they did how they conducted themselves. So if, if, if a man says one thing about how to operate a business in church on Sunday, and then he goes and he steals and he cheats people on Monday through Saturday, don't imitate that. Don't imitate the actions. Even if he gives you the right words. And by the way, he shouldn't be teaching either. He should probably slam dunk him out of there. Peter then gave in part the standard that a shepherd should attain to so that those under them would feel confident in following them. The flock should feel confident in following those who are in responsibility over them. They, they should be able to drop in unannounced, just like the ATF does. <laughs> you can laugh. Okay, I guess you'd have to be a gun dealer to understand how terrifying that can be. Anyway, to drop in unannounced and see the, the conduct, does his conduct Imitate his speech. Peter said this in First Peter five two and three. The shepherd the flock of God you, the shepherd the flock of God among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Oh, I got to do this stuff. I could be out, fill in the blank, but I got to do this stuff. But voluntarily, and, and, and I, would, I would add to that excitedly. That's not scripture, but that's what I would add there. According to the will of God, not for sordid gain. And when I looked up sordid gain, it was, I'll send them a handkerchief with my sweat on it and they'll give me money. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, delighted, excited, happy to do it. Nor yet is lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Um, this to me is one of the most important characteristics of someone who's in leadership. What that means is servanthood. It's, it's like the modern political world. They've lost the concept of what it means to be a public servant. Let's look that word up. I wonder what servant means. Does it mean boss? Does it mean lord? Does it mean head? Does it mean do as I tell you? No. It means someone who is excited about... If you're in a position of leadership, that gets, means you get to serve more people at a time. That's what it means. Instead of serving one person at a time, which you should do as well, maybe you get to serve 20 at a time or 50 at a time or 5,000 at a time. That's what it means. So what does this imply for those who are in positions of responsibility? Whether parents, teachers, Sunday school teachers, preachers, elders, it implies a life of humility, discipline, and integrity, among others. Humility, discipline, and integrity. This is someone who can be entreated, who does not have a high view of themselves, and is able to accept correction when they are wrong. I'm so glad I'm never wrong. I would just never deal with correction. Ha, that's right. This is recorded. Everybody in here knows better. But can you see my face in the camera there? Okay. This is someone who truly cares about other, others and shows it not only in their words, but in their deeds. Not only in their words, but in their deeds. This is the person who is trustworthy and kind, but who can be stern and unmovable, immovable when the need arises. They do not flirt with every doctrine that comes along, and they are able to discern not only good from evil, but as Spurgeon said, they are able to tell the difference between right and almost right. Discernment is not simply a matter of telling the difference between what is right and wrong. Rather, it is the difference between right and almost right. And I like that other one, too, so I stuck that in there. for That's free. I won't charge you for that one. Oh, I should read it. Atheism is a strange thing. Even the devils never fell into that vice, but the devils also tremble and believe. <laughs> Uh, that guy had so many cool quotes. In short, in short, people who are in responsible positions are worthy of being imitated, and yet they are conscious and concerned. I had the word terrified here, but I, I use that too often. They're conscious of and concerned about being imitated because they know how imperfect they are. We have the perfect example to follow in the pages of Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as that example is lived out in the followers of Jesus, those are the ones we should imitate. But, and as a side note, had you been living in first century, in 20, uh, 25, probably to 33 AD, he had nothing to correct. There was nothing in the Lord Jesus that needed correcting, ever. Paul needed correction. Remember Paul and Barnabas? Had a falling out? 
Peter needed correction. James needed correction. Bartholomew, I, nothing in the scripture, but he was a man. He needed correction. The one who never needs correction is the one we should set our sights on. The Lord Jesus Christ. And as his human, fallible followers follow him, follow them. Any com- comments or questions, concerns? Verse 17. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, oh, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Well, there's so much here. We may not. Eight minutes. We'll see what we can do. All of us have our troubleshooters. Someone we know we can trust to look into a matter and properly deal with it, whether it's engine problems or counseling issues. If we have a problem in our home with vehicles, Nick's our guy. And when I post things on Facebook where I'm fixing a vehicle, I ain't fixing it. I'm doing what Nick tells me. He's my troubleshooter. Paul had a troubleshooter. So with Nick, you tell him what's going on and just get out of the way and it'll probably be fixed better than it was when it was new. That's how it is in the church. Leadership will be composed of men of differing talents. And when certain issues come up, pretty much everyone knows which elder will be asked to help with that issue. If it's counseling, Jim or Jess or Dave. If it's plunging the toilet, I'm your guy. Really? I I know which type of plunger to use. Paul had so thoroughly discipled, discipled and disciplined Timothy. And Timothy was so clearly living out the gospel that he could actually dispatch him to a troubled church and know that the situation would be in good hands. Have you got people like that in your life? That you, you, can, you can send them to take care of something and you don't worry about it. I've got people like that in my life. People who I can trust to run my store when I'm not there. I don't even think about it. doesn't even, I don't go, oh, I hope they, oh, I hope they don't forget. They'd probably do a better job than I did. Now, I'm not saying Timothy would do a better job than Paul. But what Paul knew was he had someone he could send to this church. He couldn't be there. He wanted to be there, but he couldn't be there. He knew that when Timothy came to Corinth, he would deal with the Corinthians just as Paul would. Why did he know that? Because Paul and Timothy got their directions from the same God, from the same Scripture. That's not to say that Paul was the only guy who knew how to handle a wayward church. That is to say that the two men were living out the gospel in their lives clearly. And they would come at it possibly in a different schedule, but they would operate in principle in the same way. That is, biblically. It is unlikely that Timothy had already arrived, and we can glean that both from the, the tense of the verb and from the uh, lack of reference to him in the introduction. Paul often, it seems like he always, includes in his introduction when he's... When he's uh, beginning a letter to a church, the people that are there that he's addressing. Timothy's not there. It's also important to note that in the last phrase that Paul taught the same where everywhere he went. There were no novel doctrines in different places, no special conditions for different churches. The gospel is the gospel, and it remains the same today as it was in 56 AD. Now, there may be different ways of presenting it, and different ways of Encouraging it in our lives that are special and, and, and allocated to local churches by the wisdom of God and the Holy Spirit. But the gospel hasn't changed. It's the same. 
Because why? Why because? Because why? However you want to word that. Because it's all that's needed. Nothing else is needed. Everybody seems to want to have a different slant, whether it was in first century Greece or 21st century America. Timothy would come and reinforce what Paul taught, not give them some new novel teaching. He was not coming to Corinthian Corinth to impress them, but to reground them in the doctrines of the gospel. Because their bad theology had resulted in bad behavior. So he was coming to reground them in good theology. I wrote something. Yeah. And when the saved and indwelt believers of Christ hear the simple gospel, they revel in it because it is life and joy and future and peace and love. The simple doctrines of the gospel are what are needed most urgently in the modern day. So this is why the common folk love to hear the teaching of Jesus. It was simple, to the point, and understandable. The teaching of the gospel should include both the precepts of Scripture and how things play out in life. And I, I for one, believe, and I, I think you agree, that Jim does a marvelous job of that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit every Sunday. Not only do we hear the Scripture, we hear how it plays out. We hear how it impacted the lives of people past, present, and, past and present. And we hear how it, it is effective and always produces good fruit. The gospel, properly lived, always produces good fruit. So, it's important to understand the definition of the word propitiation. But you should be able to connect with the understanding and the knowing that you're forgiven. So, Webster tells us what propitiation means. But for you, for me, it means that he took the payment. I'm out from under guilt forever undeservingly out from under guilt. We must know that grace is the only reason we have eternal life, abundance here, freedom from sin and guilt, and even indeed the drawing and faith that resulted in this incredible life. But further than this, we must understand that grace makes us useful in the hands of the Savior. And because of that, we must minister to others in that grace, because of that grace, by that grace. We are competent because of grace and grace alone. We are effective because of grace and grace alone. But we must act by that grace. Thus, Paul's teaching was at once doctrinal and practical. The Corinthians needed both. And he's going to say, I'm just going to jump. I'm going to jump to verse. We're not going to go there. We're done for the day. We're going to finish with verse 17. But he says, I will come to you soon in verse 19 as the Lord wills and I will find out. Not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. I won't see just what you're saying, but I'm going to see what you're doing. I'm going to see if they match up. And what, what we will find out with the Corinthians is that their bad theology was matching up with their arrogant behavior. And that's what Timothy is being sent to correct. That's what Paul is writing to correct. And so for us, as we read through and study and pay attention to the Gospels, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of it. It's so that we might live productive lives to the glory of God, to His praise. So that people will say, oh, look how they love one another. But the ultimate glory goes to who? We wouldn't love one another. We would keep each other at arm's length if it wasn't for the Gospel. But because of the Gospel, 
because of grace, we are what we are. And I'm grateful for that. Are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the Word of God, for its power, for its influence, for its direction, for its, and for the grace that comes directly through it to impart into our lives behavior that will bring you glory, for that is what we live for. We live for the glory of God, by your grace, by your grace alone. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.